Hello, welcome to the 50-Minute Hour. This is Corey, and I'm joined today by Jacob Bain and uh, Calvin. Hi, how are you doing? I'm uh, helping record this one, and Jacob is here as well, sipping his espresso. Hello there. What, what are we drinking today, fellas? We've got espresso coffee with frothed, is it half and half? Uh, no, it's just milk. Just, just yeah, milk. Just, it's, uh, it's very good. Though. It has omega-3 fatty acids in it, though, so <laughs> you're getting that fish protein. And then we also we also have a coffee, just normal Pete's coffee through a French press. Pete's coffee being uh, the local Lexington varietal, so quite good. Bit of, bit of cerbic, but the, the bite's what gives you uh, motivation in life, so. I like it. It's, it's good. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you hope to achieve doing this podcast, why you decided to sit down and record today. So I'm Corey. Um, I live in Lexington, Kentucky. I was born here. Um, several people told me I should do a podcast before. I've done podcasts with friends before, um, but I've never really done a solo podcast. And uh, I think it was actually... Uh, your brother, Calvin, who said I should just go ahead and do one. So he hit you up because you have experience with this whole yeah. science. So now we're here today. Um, I was educated in New York City. I lived in Queens, Brooklyn, and uh, Manhattan. And uh, for a total of uh, five years, all between all three of those. And I studied philosophy and psychoanalysis at the New School for Social Research, uh, which is of the Frankfurt School tradition, the Marxist, you know, far leftist tradition, of which I am not, um, but there were certain advantages to being in that environment, believe it or not, compared to uh, other uh, liberal sort of uh, ideologies that are dominating uh, campuses nowadays. Um, anyhow, uh, I'm particularly interested in esoterica, the occult, theology, um, general religious studies. Um, I'm more trained in uh, theology dealing with uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism. Um, but I sort of dabble in uh, comparative religious studies in general. Um, and then, of course, uh, in psychoanalysis and philosophy of history and history of philosophy and the history of ideas. Um, and then I also like to dabble in literature and art. And one thing I like to do is um, have uh, symposiums and uh, just have people come together and drink and uh, talk and talk about art and literature and all sorts of fun things. And um, at the moment, uh, I actually got the uh, Orthodox Church, I tend to start a little uh, Freud class. We were doing a Dante class, but now we're doing a Freud class. And uh, through various means of conniving, I was even able to get them to help fund the book. So I feel like quite the Jesuit right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, that's where we are now. You've got a, a very interesting set of, of interests, uh -huh. interesting set of interests, uh, different than, you know, a lot of people you know, that you might meet on the street. How where, how did you develop these interests? You know, yeah. were you just a kid and decided, I like psychoanalysis? Yeah, actually pretty much. <laughs> when I was uh, three years old, my dad told me about God. He wasn't religious. He was like a deist. My mom's agnostic. They were not together. So I grew up, they were always separate pretty much since I was one. Um, and my father one day told me about God and he said, you know, this very basic theological premise uh, that God is so powerful and strong, he can do anything. And uh, I know this is cliche, but as far as I'm aware at that time, I had not heard of it. And this was my own invention at that point, was I asked him in response, can he make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? And <laughs> my dad just, just told me, you're not allowed to ask those questions. <laughs> so I sort of just became this Socratic annoying little shit. And I just went around uh, asking people the sorts of questions that I thought you weren't allowed to ask. And I see, I mean, my teachers, some of them liked this and some of them complained to my parents about it. Um, and I'm sure I was annoying, but uh, that habit sort of developed. And I remember I had a, a moderate uh, chronic insomnia in the early years of my high school education, I lived near downtown Lexington. And I would just go around talking to homeless people or drunk college students walking around the streets. And I would ask them these sorts of questions. Um, you know, I, I was probably had about a 60% success rate as far as actually getting them to engage. But when I did, I actually found some pretty enlightening uh, ideas about things, especially like the drunk hipster college students always had some fun things to do. And uh, that's kind of how I developed that attitude in general. I just never really kind of... Um, I always had this need to, I guess from a very early age, I was put off by people's um, complacency, even otherwise intellectually um, motivated people. They had a certain complacency 
uh, of not questioning ideas that they just assumed were false. And so I've always had this complex where whatever idea I held, I had to live it to its most Dionysian, uh, in the Nietzschean sense, like in Birth of Tragedy, the most Dionysian uh, extent where I had to follow it at its fullest capacity in the most extreme form, because I think it's in the Dionysian uh, that you find the greatest flaws and strengths of something. And this also means um, really actually engaging with ideas that are maybe or supposedly or even likely uh, antagonistic to the ideas I hold. And uh, I always try to see the other person's arguments uh, from their point of view as best as I can. And uh, the virtue I really strive for and the one I value in other people is uh, intellectual honesty, by which I mean actually following your ideas to the logical conclusion, which in general has actually made me more or less a skeptic. I, I really don't believe in anything. I'm not a nihilist, but because that would be itself a sort of a affirmation of a negation. But in the sense that um, I follow through in certain rituals inevitably because you have to, unless you want to just live in a cave and die from starvation, uh, you know, in like a Pyrrhic sort of sense. Um, but I uh, follow through with what is, I think, in the end of the day, uh, hedonistic. But it's hedonism of a more higher nature, I would say. Hedonism that's more, uh, uh, you know, Kierkegaard sort of uh, right before the night of infinite resignation. I'm trying to sort of sort out things. And at the moment, that basically means just following the orthodox way of life, I guess. But uh, at least to some extent. So one question that, you know, may seem silly, but I think actually several people at home might be wondering now, now that you have obviously a lot more education than you had when you were three, do you have an answer to the question you originally asked your dad? Could God make a rock that he couldn't lift? Yeah, there's several ways you could go about that if you really wanted to. I don't think they're very interesting. There's a scholastic answer, um, which would more or less be that it's uh, a false question. It's, it's a nonsensical question, like, can God make a triangle with four sides? Uh, which to say it's um, it's not a logically coherent question, therefore it doesn't have an answer, All right. uh, either as an affirmation or negation. Yeah. There's a more uh, mystical answer, um, which is that, uh, yeah, he could. Um, and and uh, <laughs> what that means, it doesn't necessarily have any, um, how would I say, stratified reality in the human mind, um, but he just could. Okay. All right. <laughs> and then if you say, well, so then there's a rock too heavy, couldn't lift it. Well, then we would say, well, no. And you would say yes and no simultaneously and just be fine with it. <laughs> and that and that's sort of like a Buddhist koan sort of thing. It breaks the mind. All right. And so like there's a there's a more vestigial or I guess plebeian way of looking at this, which is just like, oh, it's a paradox. And then there's a more uh, initiatory way of looking at it, which is that this is something that with enough contemplation breaks your mind so you can actually begin to uh, handle the more complex mysteries. All right. All right. Now, you talk about just going on the street and asking homeless people or drunk people questions. Uh -huh. I find that interesting because a lot of people, they don't talk to strangers. You think of how many people you, you meet and talk to in your life and how many people there are. Do you, think, do you think more people should just talk to strangers, homeless people, drunk people on the street? Do you think there's a lot we can learn from people that we might not in normal life even cross paths with? And how, how would you recommend someone doing that? Yeah, so I will say I've had much more success in Lexington than other cities I've lived in. New York City, Phoenix, uh, Ash Asheville, North Carolina. And why do you think that is? <sighs> I'll get back to that. <laughs> I'll get back to that later. That's a bit of a that's a bit of a bombshell. Um, for now, I'll say that there's a certain strategy to it. Um, I remember when I was like 15, I wrote I had read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and as a response, I wrote Zen and the Art of Frat Boy Engagement. <laughs> which which was sort of like a philosophical guide on how to go about this. Um, Lexington was called Athens of the West before we took on the name um, Horse Capital of the World, which like 11 cities in the world have. So I really think we should go back to Athens of the West. <laughs> but the reason is, is because Lexington has a certain congeniality, uh, a friendliness, which is common to Southern culture. At the same time, we have a lot of like uh, Yankee invasion, you know, carpetbaggers mm -hmm. coming in. We also have two universities and we have a bit of like a hipster artsy culture, especially since Jim Gray. And what that is, is like you have this combination of people who are just bored enough, but also just intellectually stimulated enough to follow you through on an invitation, uh, whether to discussion or even to come over to some random person's house and sip wine and talk about, uh, you know, Socrates or whatever, I guess. And um, so there's, there's that aspect. Um, and then, of course, there's the catacombs, uh, which some have speculated that uh, is actually a Nephilim capital. 
that Lexington was built over and that the bones from which uh, the necrotic energies were used by ancient pagans to, uh, you know, like in the Book of Enoch where the virgins are unified energetically with the demons to produce the Nephilim offspring and that those bones contain a certain power in it. Well, that power would be seeping in the water supply or who knows what else and getting into the Lexingtonian zeitgeist and causing this sort of a modern agora effect where you can just kind of be in the street and talk to people. I will say in the past 10 years that has gone down. I don't, I don't think as much as in my insomnia days, it's as active as it is now, or I've just been less fortunate. But it's still better than some other yes, locations you've definitely, had. Definitely, yeah. I mean, New York City's mostly posers and people with sticks up their ass and assholes. And then um, <laughs> Ashland is even more poserous, but more than anything, they're just very flaky. Ashland, Kentucky? Sorry, Asheville. Thank Ash you. Asheville. Okay. Asheville, North Carolina. North Carolina. Um, which has similarities to Lexington, but overall it's much more uh, of a show. Lexington's actually real. There's a, you know, real recognizes real, and there's a certain realness to the people in Lexington. What's the, uh, the most interesting or real experience you had talking to a random stranger on the street at these late nights? Is there one that like sticks out vividly as really eye-opening or was it, were they all just kind of interesting? I don't necessarily remember them all. Um, <laughs> there was one when I was in high school where I found this, uh, this frat guy who by all appearances was not very bright or intelligent or um, seemingly very uh, enthused about my bothering him. But after about an hour, he actually started to <laughs> just ask me certain questions. And we kept we kept going on. I think this lasted for like four hours. Oh. I was just following. He was trying to find his way home. And he, <laughs> you know, he was very drunk. And so he didn't, he, it was like three in the morning. Um, and he was having troubles. And I'm sure I wasn't helping him by making him, you know, go through all these questions he's had trying been trying to bury that I've probably ruined his life by bringing back up. Um, so, you know, I corrupted the youth. But uh that one was a lot of fun. And that one was actually the, what I based Zen and the Art of Frat Boy engagement off of. That was that conversation. Is that a writing that you'd ever uh, consider releasing for public <laughs> for public? No, I, any, I, you know, there's something Darius says about writing where it's like, I'm always in pain. You know, I think the, the modern word for it is cringe. When you look at a piece of writing from, you know, even a day ago, I know I'm, okay. I'm very perfectionistic. So I, I think when I'm like 60, I'll publish something. But on right. something simple, like pipe smoking or how to host a symposium, no, I would no. always feel very embarrassed to say anything about ultimate truths of reality and okay. put it into writing. I'm very much with Socrates, Lao Tzu, and all this. You know, like when you write something, you 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 become a fool, but not even a fool in like the dignified sense. You become a fool in the sense like no one's going to actually understand what you meant when you write, and uh, people are just going to misinterpret you. Uh, I think it's much better to just say a bunch of things and then fools who hear you will write what you said down and then, you know, they'll write it down very ambiguously. And so no no one really have any idea what you actually said. And there's an advantage, there's advantage of there of some sense of like impenetrable immortality and, and uh, perfection, but also this idea that people just have a sort of Rorschach effect with you where they just project onto you their own ideas and everyone thinks they agree with you. And that's really wonderful. So that's what I'm going for. So that's one of the reasons this podcast is going to be helpful for that. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there will be a self-destruct button uh, in, in, in the podcast and to anyone who ever hears it. So this is just your first warning. It's we, kind of like Ro Roscoe's Basilisk right now. So just prepare yourselves. One question. This is this would be for a future podcast or possibly video. Would you ever do like a sort of thing where you go on the street with mics and, you know, interview homeless people at 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah, I'd be, okay. down. I'd be okay. down to do that. That would be a lot of fun. Okay, it, we'll keep that Reliving my old days. <laughs> we'll keep I, don't, I don't know how the presence of a mic would affect it. That would be interesting because I think one reason they were more interested is because I was some unassuming and naive, you know, young boy. You might think they're being interviewed and right. give a fake answer. I mean, I, I, I'd be down to try. I just don't know how authentic it would be. We know I, I used to shoot a lot of film photography, and the trick I learned with this is that um, I would use a digital camera, not seriously. I would just get my friends immune, you know, like Pavlovian training um, to the, the clicking noise. And uh, once they became immune to it, then I could actually get out of my film camera and do serious work because that was when uh, they weren't even aware of the fact I was really taking pictures. I mean, semi-consciously they were, but um, the the consciousness of my taking a picture had been relegated to a, you know, a less conscious part of their mind to where I had a certain higher level of authenticity in their everyday engagements. Um, which also reminds me when I, was, when I was in New School, I took this class on art, philosophy of art. And we had a photographer, Mark Larimore, come in and he would lecture. And him and I kind of grok together. I remember 
I uh, went to the, uh, I was like a student assistant and I went to um, some party of new school teachers and officials and all that. And I was really high. And <laughs> I, I, you know, all the teachers, I was like, you know, who are you? What's going on? But then I found Mark Laramore just standing awkwardly like some creep. <laughs> and I went up to him and we just like understood each other. I don't even think we were speaking words. We were just like, yes. And ever since then, you know, we got along pretty well. But I remember anyway, he was lecturing uh, about, um, he would, he would kind of stalk people, not in like a creepy way, like an artistic way. And, <laughs> and he would stalk people and he would, um, he would take pictures of people. He would stalk photographers, other photographers, and he would wait until they took a picture of someone. And then he would take a picture of them taking a picture of someone. And he liked it when they weren't aware. And he would, he would often philosophize and wax, wax on about this idea of taking pictures of people that aren't conscious of their image being reified, but who are conscious of reifying an image. And so I was like, okay. So I got in the corner while he was lecturing. I took a picture of him while he had a picture behind him of, of him taking a picture of someone who was taking a picture of someone and he was lecturing about that act. So I said, now I'm reifying the image of someone who is reifying the image of someone who is reifying the image with the third person in that not being aware, but the, the second person also not being aware of being reified by the image. So I was like, I have really, you know, assumed the ultimate meta reification of images. <laughs> Behold. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, yeah, Kentucky would actually be a good state if you wanted to try because we actually got a law in any conversation recorded. One person has to consent and that one person can be you. Only one person. Yeah, only one person has to consent. Semi-consensual conversation. And if it's three people, only one and that can be the person with the recorder. So where one is gathered in my name, it is consensual. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to get the homeless people immune to being recorded. Yeah, we we could do... do. um, What's it called? Uh, a bug? Is yeah. that legal? Hidden mic, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> you also look that one up. Let me get back to my lawyer. <laughs> Jacob, look it up. <laughs> Pull it up real quick. Jacob, can you look that up real quick? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I don't know. I haven't talked to to many people on the street. I think I may try. That sounds interesting. I've always wanted to try that because you, there's so many interesting people with so many different experiences. So I think that would be. Interesting. Are there any other things you like to do like that? Just talking to strangers, any other approaches you've got? Because I think that's something that kind of an exercise that people listening to this could start to do. Just kind of break into getting into a habit of talking to strangers. Yeah, it's kind of like asking girls out. You just have to be prepared for failure. And once you get beyond that, uh, you can just kind of go balls to the wall on it and just, you know, just, just be ready to get insulted or, you know, get mean stares. I mean, just, just try to look, you know, generally authentic and you'll attract authentic people. Okay. And, uh, you know, don't, don't bother people who are busy because then you'll just come off as an asshole even more than you probably already are. And, uh, you know, just be nice and courteous. And if people aren't interested, just move on. What's and, a good question to start with? Um, well, you could do something very trite or uh, trivial or cliche. Uh, I don't know, like, what is the meaning of life? Um, just because it's so ambiguous, it can it kind of helps people just kind of think and then, you know, again, word shock effect, just go from there. Or you can have something very specific too. I mean, you, you it's kind of an intuition you start to develop with what whoever you're preying on. Um, I guess, so as far as a more specific question, you could say, um, do, you know, you could, you, let's, let's go for something very basic in, in the platonic trajectory. Like, let's say, um, do you know how all apples share appleness in common. And if they're going to engage with you at all, they'll probably respond uh, in the affirmative. And then you can say, um, okay, so is there a certain appleness that exists above all reality, above all manifest existence? And if so, what is the what are the implications of that? And does that appleness also exist for deathness and goodness and beauty and truth and so on and so on? And usually people, especially nowadays, will logically follow this, but then they'll, they'll kind of catch themselves right until they get up to truth, beauty, and goodness, because they're like, well, those things are subjective. And then you can get into a more interesting conversation about subjectivity and objectivity. And then you throw in the Kierkegaard, and that's where you really get them. That's the trap you're leading up for. What's, so. the, what's the trap? The, the Kierkegaardian aspect of this, the total radical subjectivity of the objective, which is that there is an objective uh, reality, objective truth, objective beauty, but um, it's so mystically beyond us and it's so penetrating to us in the aspect of love um, that there's an, there's this intensity of subjectivity in which the objectivity relates to each person individually. 
Okay. Um, so there's this radical subjectivity of understanding the objective, uh, which it's kind of like, um, you know, on one hand, God will say, you know, Moses, raise up your staff so I can, you know, kill all these, you know, nasty people. But then uh, Christ saying uh, to the general public, you know, he who picks up the sword dies by the sword. So you can you can get this, or, uh, or of course, Kierkegaard's favorite to use being um, the teleological suspension of the ethical, uh, where, uh, where we have someone like um, uh, Isaac being sacrificed, uh, you know, someone's own son, which seems heinous and against everything the Jewish God uh, is going for. Uh, but uh, even, even in that moment, what Abraham has to consider is to him radically subjective. And therefore he has to suspend the general law that bides the general public because he's relating to a deep esoteric subjective truth of the objective that otherwise in normal circumstances would say thou shalt not murder. I think we should do a Kierkegaardian episode at some point. Yeah, yeah, we should do an episode for all the fun ones. Kierkegaard, Stirner, Heidegger, Spinoza, Spinoza my favorite target, Kant. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's lots of, uh, the Desaad, Freud, you know, there's lots of good stuff we could do. Yeah. Um, digressing back to earlier, um, I've pulled up the Kentucky laws on eavesdropping. And as long as one person, so you, are aware that the conversation is being recorded, um, it is legal. So we could do a bug. Um, How could it not be legal? <laughs> where it would be illegal is, uh, you know, if, you know, someone was listening in on your phone and they were recording the conversation and you weren't aware of it as well. Uh, because they are not actively participating in the conversation. Oh, I as, see. As long as one person is actively participating. So if I may, um, the new school is in New York, right? Yes, it's in Manhattan. How did you end up at the new school from like Lexington? Like I had yeah. never even really heard of the new school before yeah. I had met you. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty big and it's known in certain circles, the fashion world, continental philosophy. So there's main, mainly two reasons. One is that I had a full ride. Um, that's a big one. The other... The other is that, um, although I ended up getting screwed out of that for political reasons, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> uh, and it's actually why I didn't end up becoming a licensed psychoanalyst as well. But anyway, uh, the, other, the other reason is that it's very difficult, one, to study traditional psychoanalysis in America. Um, you know, the typical response that most Americans have been trained, uh, conditioned to say is like, well, isn't that disproven? Isn't it pseudoscience? Well, the funny thing is, if you go to South America or Europe, you know, psychologists there don't treat it that way, which just goes to show how, one, how little much of a science psychology actually is, and two, how much the supposed science of psychology is actually mostly influenced by economic and material interests, namely what is funded in the general metaphysical tradition of the country. Again, America's being Puritanism, which doesn't want to look deep inside of itself and want to avoid all the nasty dark parts of us. So people just take pills and stop questioning. Psychoanalysis for that reason does not take root in America. It's kind of like you, you've seen the film Silence. No, I haven't. Have you, Jacob? The 2016 yes. Scorsese film? Yes, and yes, there's, a good, there's a really good scene where, uh, you know, this, this uh, priest, Jesuit, is going to Japan and he's talking to the, to the uh, Inquisitor. And the Inquisitor says... Is that uh, Liam Neeson? Or? Yeah, I think, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not good with actor names, but I guess. And uh, he says something to the effect that uh, Christianity cannot root itself in Japan because the Japanese land is a swamp. And there's a literary value there that I think applies to a lot of things. And it's basically that the metaphysical traditions of Japan do not even begin to have the root system to comprehend what Christianity is. And he gives the example yeah. later on in the film through another Jesuit priest who's become Shinto uh, that or Buddhist, whatever, um, that uh, the sun that uh, Japanese Christians understood as the son of God, they actually just were worshiping the literal sun, which fairly enough was probably even how a lot of initial Christians probably saw it in the Roman empire. But anyway, um, the, the cult of Helios, so, so to speak. Uh, but anyway, Sola in, or Sol Invictus, yes, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And, and which is just the Romanization of the, the Apollonian Helian cults. But, but uh, in that respect too, the metaphysical traditions of America, which is to say masonry and um, it's not a Christian nation, it's a Masonic Puritan nation. <laughs> Uh, people need to get that right. It's like, well, both sides of that debate are wrong. It's not non-religious and it's not, it's not, it's not a secular nation. It's not a Christian nation. It's a Masonic, um, Masonic, uh, Puritan cult, uh, 
And by called, I don't mean that in a necessarily negative sense. I just mean in the sense of the worship of a specific thing. But but and 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 in that trajectory, America is a swamp to psychoanalysis. Indeed, when Freud was on the ship coming to America to give his first lecture here, uh, and uh, he was with Jung, and he said to Jung, "We are bringing the plague." <laughs> and the, if you see the film, I can't remember which one. Maybe it's a a strange method. There's a really good scene. It's very subtle. And I don't know if this was intentional on the director, but Freud, it's this scene where Freud is telling this to Jung on the ship and he's smoking a really long cigar and the ship is moving very slowly as they dock into New York. And you see the Statue of Liberty and, and as the ship is moving, Freud's cigar is going right into the, the uterus <laughs> of the Statue of Liberty, which is a brilliant poetic statement as he's saying this to Jung. I don't know if that was intentional, but it's, it's a, an otherwise not very good film. It's a very brilliant little piece of poetry. But uh, uh, so, yes, we are bringing them the plague, the plague of the poisoned phallus that is extending out of the words of Freud. So and it was and uh, America took it, did something weird with it in the 50s and then it got destroyed. And now it's basically non-existent. Anyways, to answer your question, I went to the new school because you could study uh, Freudian traditional psychoanalysis, studying any form of psychoanalysis, even modernized castrated versions is hard to do in America, but especially studying, studying traditional Freudian psychoanalysis. And I also got to be analyzed by a traditional, you know, 100% Freudian psychoanalyst who was crazy, which is the way I like it. You know, you don't trust a skinny chef, you don't trust a sane analyst. And um, so there's, and, and then the aspect that I could actually learn continental philosophy. This is the other, you can't really study continental philosophy in most universities in America. You know, you, you have all these students who read Nietzsche or Plato, and then they go to um, go study philosophy, and all they're reading about is basically how philosophy supplements mathematical scientific problems. Um, which I'm not saying it doesn't have its value. It does. It's just, I think in order, I think really the things have to be bridged together, but um, the new school was a place where I could actually study the continental tradition. Um, and Plato and all these other ancient philosophers weren't just supplementary to, to understanding logical values, which were then used to uh, supplement mathematical problems. So obviously you're interested in it and you've been educated, but you sound turned off by, you know, performing psychoanalysis in America, at least. Would you ever consider doing it if you lived in a different country where it was more accepted or funded? I'm not turned off from being a psychoanalyst. It's more more so a practical problem. Um, okay. I'm turned off by academia, certainly. Uh, the problem with psychoanalysis is that there's a very strict licensing system in America and even in other countries, but especially America, it's very strict. And as soon as I graduated from the psychoanalytic program, uh, the place where you get the license in Kentucky, which was in Louisville to be a psychoanalyst in Kentucky, shut down. Now, theoretically, I could still be a psychoanalyst. The advantage of that is that I could study here and it would only be about two years for me to get licensed. So my total education would have been seven years, which is pretty small for being a psychoanalyst because most psychoanalysts get a PsyD, they practice for a long time, and only then do they get licensed as a psychoanalyst. I was on the direct, straightforward path. And... Um, Basically, what that means is that I would then have to go I'd, at the at the easiest get a social worker's degree, which is terrible. It's like education degrees. They just dumb you down um, or, you know, spend another, you know, whatever money, you know, probably 100,000 to become a PsyD and then get licensed as a psychoanalyst in another state and then go through all the rigmarole to make that license transferable over to Kentucky because I wouldn't really want to practice anywhere else. And the other thing is that um, I, I kind of like I said earlier, I got screwed over by the new school. And in regards to um, my financial situation, and they unloaded all this debt onto me, which I'm in the process of, of getting forgiven, but it's on the condition that, uh, A, I don't make above poverty level for three years, and two, um, that I never take out a loan again, which basically bars me from ever getting a license in, in the short term. Uh, people have suggested there's a, there's a certain loophole, I guess. You just can't advertise yourself as a therapist, a psychoanalyst. I could advertise myself as a tarot reader, a mystic, you know, some something woohoo new agey that's going to, you know, be like the honeypot for uh, wine moms. And then <laughs> and then from there to say, you know, haha, you know, it's a this is this tarot card is your Oedipus complex. You know, it's it's a trap card. I'm actually going <laughs> to I'm actually going to psychoanalyze you now. <laughs> Get ready for the ride. <laughs> Could you, could you do like freelance psychoanalysis just out of your apartment? Or you can't that... advertise yourself as a psychoanalyst. The, the, the licensing legalism okay. is very strict. So you I couldn't could, put psycho. I could say, else. I could say, 
which I did do this in high school. We had our own independent psychoanalysis class. And I would go around, uh, usually through Craigslist, finding people who, um, I, I advertised myself as a person trained in psychoanalytic and psychodynamic therapy, which even at the time was true. I had studied autodidactically as I do with most things quite extensively. And uh, so I did, I did get a few uh, patients and some, some of them were recurring. And we would uh, talk, you know, well, they would talk. I would mostly just listen. And they would also tell me their dreams. I record their dreams, bring it back to the class. And uh, we would analyze the dreams and we turned that in. I mean, we had this whole fold, we had this whole folder, a binder. I'm pretty sure the psychology professor did not read. She wasn't, she was very normal. She didn't like psychoanalysis, but she let us have her class. She gave us hundreds. Um, and I'm sure she didn't read it because we had a paper written on how to artificially uh, create tension in the Oedipal complex and male children in order to make them philosophically aware by way of putting a saddle on the father's phallus and having them ride that while facing the father. And there's a certain mechanism to why that made sense to us at the time that I won't go into, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure she didn't read it to say nonetheless. <laughs> so You also mentioned that you, you could possibly do it somewhere else, but you said that you would only want to do it in Kentucky. What is it about Kentucky that, that really makes you want to stay here? I don't know. It's everywhere I go, everywhere else I go. Kentucky has a certain homegrown organic weirdness to it that I've been in a lot of weird places. New York City has weird people. Phoenix has weird people. Asheville definitely has weird people, but there's usually a certain sense of artificiality I find in it. And there's something about Kentucky's weirdness that's just um, mystic in the, in the etymological sense of the word that um, you can't really speak about it. It's, it's um, ineffable and uh, dark and it's almost like a David Lynch film. It, okay. You can't put your finger on it because it's so deeply unconscious, but it's there and you sense it. And you you encounter people who feel energy of places and Kentucky, especially like the Lexington area, definitely with these people I've talked to. And then in my own, uh, experience has that weird energy right. and, uh, you encounter other places with the weird energy is that that's not necessarily what makes Lexington unique or Kentucky in general, but there's something again, dark and mysterious about it. Um, and more, more than anything organic, it's not artificial. It's not a show. It's not put on. It's something that's deep in the history of what Kentucky is. And Are there places where you feel it or sense it more in Kentucky? Yeah, downtown Lexington. Downtown, yeah, downtown. downtown Lexington. Yeah. Huh. Basically, the closer you get to center point. Do you have any ideas why that why that could be? Is well, the, the theories, yeah, the earlier? theories are that the main ziggurat. Um, so the places where in you know you've heard of ziggurats in Sumeria and mm -hmm. Mexico and the Aztec and Incas. Um, all these pyramids could basically be understood as ziggurats. And what happens is that in order to, you do the sacrifice on the top of the ziggurat, you know, for Aztecs taking the heart out, whatever, um, because that's where the the spirits or the, or the uh, not the Nephilim, the, the fallen angels in the Book of Enoch come down to um, put their energy into the city. And so like in Sumeria, you know, every, every city had its own deity and therefore ziggurat. Um, well, the Nephilim capital that would have been underneath Lexington, its center, which is now called Center Point, literally, uh, would be underneath uh, Center Point, and that would be where the ziggurat was. So that is to say, the primal charge of energy and where they buried their greatest warriors or Nephilim. Have people ever gone down there? To yeah, see? yeah. There were two. There were two explorers who didn't know each other. There's a lot of controversy over this, and the academic literature on it is scarce and also not very good um, for a variety of reasons. Um, Mormons tend to actually be much better with this sort of stuff. If you want to read like Mormon archaeology or their theology and archaeology, I guess they're pretty intertwined. Um, so the, anyway, these two explorers who, again, didn't know each other, one was British, one was Irish, uh, both reported finding large skeletons about seven, eight feet and um, decoration of the tombs that were not uh, similar to any known Native American um, uh, and was this that they found this? Underneath Lexington. This was before Lexington was really settled. Okay. okay this so was in the ago. late, mid to late 18th century. Okay. Lexington proper really started in the 1760s. Okay. And um, at that time, there was a river, which is now beneath Vine Street. And there's actually a lot of rivers beneath Lexington that are still running. They're just really deep. And there's a whole natural cave system to say nothing of any artificial cave system. So it's quite likely that all the cave systems developed by man throughout years for mining or prohibition or whatever, eventually at some point connect to the one, the natural case systems and possibly via those to the uh, Nephilim case. 
So I will say as a geographer, someone studying geography and uh, geomorphology in the UK's uh, geography department, um, I've had to do a lot of research on what they call karst landscape, which has to do basically with a landscape that is determined by the fluvial, the water patterns, and how that water seeps into the landscape. So surrounding Lexington, we have a lot of um, karst topography. We have a lot of limestone, and this shapes kind of the subterranean um, layout of Lexington from underneath. And so there are many caves surrounding Lexington. There are many caves surrounding um, the counties within uh, Kentucky. And uh, obviously Mammoth Cave being the biggest cave in the world uh, is thought to be connected to many of these caves. Um, they still haven't found um, dead ends to all these tunnels. A lot of these tunnels go on who knows how far. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of research that has yet to be conducted here. Um, I think at some point we'll probably do a podcast completely episode, completely dedicated to the Nephilim, of course. Because it's a very, uh, it's a very in-depth uh, subject, which you can really go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and the, and the rabbit hole goes deep. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracies dealing with Masons and Jesuits in particular, which uh, Father Sarah from Rose of Blessed Memory talks about the Jesuits' involvement in archaeology since I think the 20s. Um, and you'll even find like in old towns in Kentucky newspapers in the archives that talk about farmers finding large skeletons all the time, and then it just disappears. So. You know, that raises several questions, but I'll, I'll, that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to it another time. Um, so we've talked kind of about your interest in philosophy and psychoanalysis and your time in the new school. Um, we really haven't delved into much other than at the very beginning, kind of your religious background, your, um, like your spiritual interest. Um, so where does, where does that play into all this? Where does that come into the picture? Yeah, so I wasn't raised with religion. Like I said, my mom was agnostic. My dad talked about God twice, I think, in my life. Um, I think from a pretty early age, I was just like the natural religion, which is to say what would be called a pagan. Um, when I was in high school and reading Plato, I was like, all right, I just agree with everything this guy says. So I, I always saw myself as basically a Platonist just without realizing it. Um, and then, of course, once I started reading Plato, I became much more immersed in that tradition. Um, the problem with Platonism is that it's purely intellectual, which plays into my biases. And it's not, there's not any actual real existential connection. I mean, you can get into theurgy and the Neoplatonist stuff and have some action or body or praxis. But to me, it's kind of just fiddling with sticks all day. So when I found, um, and in many ways, it was actually being psychoanalyzed that started to make me look deeper into Christianity. And then especially reading uh, Freud and Max Stirner. And uh, I, I, it would take me a while to explain exactly why, because this doesn't sound very intuitive, but um, I was drawn to the art and philosophy of Catholicism initially. Um, although after I started going to a Catholic church and then even being baptized in a Catholic church, I started to become disillusioned with the more scholastic aspects of it, which then naturally led me into orthodoxy. Now, I will, I will say it's difficult for me even now to say I am really Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, even Christian, I am very immersed and dedicated to the theology and the culture that it produces. Um, and intellectually, there's a sense in which I do believe it. But as far as whether or not I actually believe it deep down, I'm, I don't really know. Again, I tend to be pretty skeptical about things by nature. Um, but if I was saying from a purely pragmatic point of view, uh, I would say it's the closest thing I can find to something like organized Platonism. Um, so I, I, I operate in this weird ep epistemological world where I believe or entertain might be a better way to put it, entertain contradictory paradoxical ideas simultaneously. I can say in one sense, I'm an atheist and say in one sense, I'm a, a Christian or a Platonist. Um, and I kind of like it that way because it actually makes it easier to talk with people of whatever background. I can get along with atheists or agnostics or occultists or whatever, because I can look from their point of view without sort of uh, disrupting my own. Yeah. So what what elements of atheism are you? Because you, do you believe in God? Yeah. So by atheism, I mean in a very uh, simple sense, which okay. is to say this existential immediacy where there's not any sense of God. Now, again, intellectually, I believe in God. I think it's difficult to trick oneself out of that okay. on a purely intellectual, philosophical basis. But of course, as uh, any orthodox uh, you know, monk would tell you, or at least any, any uh, one worth their salt, I guess, or immersed, immersed in the patristic tradition, um, the philosophical and intellectual is not really where it is. It's in the heart. And the, pro the problem is, especially for a modern man, 
especially one of intellectual uh, bent, getting the mind into the heart. That's all what hesychasm is, the, the prayer of the heart, of enmeshing the mind into the heart, and making them in union as it was with Adam before the fall. Um, for a variety of reasons now, people's uh, uh, heart and mind are very distant, and I'm a particular case of that. I really have very little access to my heart. I think I access it most in my relations to other people, though, especially when I'm doing things like a symposium. Um, but for the most part, again, I, I have to balance out with this brash, uh, in, a in a Winnicott sense, false self of my intellectual side that I have to operate from. And I also just take a certain, not Calvinist, but I should say, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, an a heavy dependence on the grace of God from a Christian theological standpoint, which is that, uh, you know, to quote somewhere in the New Testament, I can't think of where it says, unless God build the house, the workers work in vain, labor in vain. Uh, the meaning of which could be understood in this situation that uh, no matter how hard you try to force yourself in the Pascal's wager, uh, it's ultimately God's grace that makes you have faith. Faith is not something you force on yourself. So in that sense, I kind of just have to trust God or the mystical force or whatever you want to call it to uh, initiate me into that. And in the moment, I'm just playing the act until then. Very interesting. Okay. Um, you, you also mentioned, uh, like, I think you have a lot of monastic background and like uh, your understanding and like intellectual understanding of the faith. Um, you spent time at a monastery at one point, correct? Yeah, several monasteries. I was living at a Catholic monastery that is actually very nice called um, Clear Creek in Oklahoma. And I was there for a total of two months, um, not consecutively. I think most consecutively I was there for a month. There's a really nice village around it, some Orthodox Protestants, mostly Catholics, of course, that are kind of just like pseudo-Amish. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean in the sense like they're, they're pretty close to being Amish, but they're traditional Christian, right? Um, and uh, not, not I, I guess I don't want to say traditional Christian in a sense disparaging to Amish, because I actually have a lot of respect for the Amish. If I was a Protestant, I'd probably be Amish. But um, I guess what I mean in the sense of being grounded in the patristic tradition, at least a bit more. Um, anyway, um, so I was there. I spent some time in a monastery in New Jersey, but it was very degenerate. And by, by which I mean they had a beer cave and <laughs> <laughs> it was very weird. And it was a Benedictine. And then... Um, I visited some other, of course, I spent time at uh, Gethsemane where Merton was, but that place has really weird vibe, but the trails are nice and they have good, uh, good cheese, fudge, and uh, especially good fruitcake, probably the only decent fruitcake you can find. And then uh, I spent about half a year at Holy Cross Hermitage in uh, West Virginia. And I still visit there a lot. I just got back from a visit. So I'm, I am particularly interested in monastic tradition because I think that's the most straightforward way to getting which is my particular problem, getting the mind into the heart. And uh, it's much more difficult, not impossible, just much more difficult to do that if you're in the world. Um, or if even if it's at all doable, it's probably not something you really do until the next life in a series of purgations. And, and for this reason, I really like origin because origin kind of gives me the most hope, <laughs> uh, which is to say, well, you know, if you, you know, hell for origin teleologically is uh, uh, purgational. Um, so hell and purgatory are more or less the same thing for origin. Now, that doesn't say that, you know, it's not extremely unpleasing, uh, displeasing. Um, it is, um, and it might take really, really long, but, uh, eventually whatever faults you have in this life that prevent you from being able to attain theosis are worked out in fear and trembling as gold through fire in the fires of Hades. And for the listeners who aren't Orthodox or may not be familiar with the term like theosis, uh, mm -hmm. could you like, yeah. summarize that real that's, fast? That's just us borrowing Greeks. We like to steal from the Greeks a lot. Um, <laughs> basically, it, it's the process of becoming God. So one thing the Romans really took in this was making their emperors gods, apotheosis, being raised up to God. Um, and then the tradition we have is that the energies of God, the divine light, which Simeon says, unless you see the divine light, you cannot be saved. St. Simeon, the new theologian, is my favorite. And might not be in this life, right? The fires of hell in, the, in, the, in a certain sense is the divine light. Um, so you, you might have to wait until you're dead to see it. But in either case, um, the divine light is what uh, energizes you into the radiance of the light of God. And through that process, you attain theosis up to the point that the saints in heaven, according to the fathers, are indistinguishable to the angels from God himself. So it doesn't sound like you believe in the classic, like if you're good and believe in God, you go to heaven. And if you're, you don't believe in God, you just instantly go to hell when you die forever. 
would you say you're di- differ from that? That's I, again, I'm not like? really committed to one or the other. I okay. could see Calvinism being the case, which would be terrible, but who knows? Um, <laughs> no offense to your namesake, but <laughs> yeah. but um, I mean, I think obviously pretty much every religion in its most exoteric form basically says that in some sense. And so I think there's a truth to it. It's just very complicated. Okay. Um, I think that good actions are not meaningless, but I would say they're more superficial than most people realize. And I think the trouble with this is that people start thinking that their good actions are who they are. When our heart is so dark, we don't even know its actual intentions. It's not to say good intentions and good actions don't deify you. It's just, it's not something you should rely on because you really don't know what your actual intentions are. Okay. Um, and not only not judging yourself, not judging others. I mean, for me, that's really the core tenet that makes Christianity unique is this aspect of the unknowingness of the heart and why you can't really judge other people. And I think that's a very good quality. From a purely psychological, pragmatic point of view, I think that's a very good attitude to have. I think even in other religious traditions, you'll notice people come to this point as well. But Christianity is the most exoteric about it. This idea of suspension of judgment, which, you know, being a Stoic, I love. So um, you should always suspend judgment. <laughs> uh, of course, obviously, we pragmatically in everyday life, we have to use judgment to narrow, you know, to navigate things navigate things. But I mean, uh, a sense of having ultimate judgment. That's what repelled me in my childhood from people who were so certain of what they believed in. And that is not something I like. I like always having an openness. Okay. Um, but also, you know, having the labyrinth drawn out to the point where you know the barriers of what seems to be reality. Yeah. So that makes some sense to me. <laughs> Obviously not as much to you. But um, before we leave, because we're, we're nearing the end of the 50-minute hour, I had a couple of questions about the monastery because a lot of people know what a monastery is. They know that monks live there. But I mean, I don't even know what is the day in the life when you're living in a monastery? You wake up at what time? What do you do? Yeah, it it varies from one monastery to another. Orthodox monasteries tend to be much more consistent. Catholics have like their own like subscription clubs, basically. So it's like you have the Jesuits, the uh, Benedictines, the uh, uh, then you have like special classes, too. So it's like you can become a mage, but then you can become a sorcerer, you know, so you you have you have um uh, what is it? The, uh, the one August, not Augustine, uh, Aquinas was a Dominican, but then you also have the Norbertines, ah, the special, the special Dominicans. Yeah. So, uh, there's that. And that's a whole rigmarole. Orthodox is much more simple. There's basically one or two standard rules. Um, interestingly, the abbot at Holy Cross was a traditional Catholic Benedictine monk. So he's very influenced by St. Benedict, who is an Orthodox saint. We just don't talk about him very much. Um, and he's awesome. I love St. Benedict. But anyway, uh, so he's he's a bit more influenced by that. Like, for instance, if you go to Holy Cross, if you go to the, the Compline service, you'll hear a hymn that is pre-schism, but generally you'll only hear in traditional Catholic monasteries, um, which is the uh, hymn to Mary. Um, I'm not going to sing it. I won't do it justice. But uh, it's probably one of the few Orthodox monasteries you'll hear this. Um, uh, so anyway, he, there's there's that background. And this monastery is very labor intensive, okay. which is partially why I left because I ended up having a disability and makes it very difficult for me to function there on a physical level. Um, but basically, uh, it's lots of farm work. You wake up at 4 a.m., you do your hour of morning prayer. Um, then you have services. You have services about seven times a day. During Lent and Clean Week, you'll be in church for about 10 hours a day. Um, you have a meal in Lent uh, once a day every 24 hours. Um, no snacking or side food. So that part can get intense. Um, but that even isn't the hardest part. The hardest part for me was really the physical aspect, like how tired I was all the time and how sleep deprived I was because I already have sleeping problems. And, you know, going to bed at like nine or 10 and waking up at four didn't help. And I was also living in the guest house. So I had to walk really far every time. Um, but, uh, and then also just being able to relate to your brothers because that's kind of the brother is your salvation, especially in the monastery. That is where your salvation is kept. Um, our monastery is particularly focused on Abba Dorotheos or Abba Dorito, as I like to call him, who is a saint who f- talks about the ABCs of monasticism. And then we also focus a lot on the Optina Elders, which was a monastery that seemed to have just poured out a special grace uh, right around the time before the communist revolution in Russia. And they had uh, these uh, plethora of saints that just popped up all of a sudden in this wonderful flower of patristic wisdom for a very practical 
every day, the sort of monastic life you're going to get in the end times, um, <laughs> which we're probably in now, <laughs> the Kali Yuga, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so it's sort of uh, it's sort of very pragmatic, down to earth. You know, no high woohoo mysticisms going on there, at least not in any visible way. We have a Japanese monk who doesn't talk, and uh, you know, some people think he can read your mind, but I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe the final question I have is uh, we've mentioned the term symposium a couple times and uh, that you host symposiums or whatnot. Um, and so for the listeners, how would you describe a symposium? Mm-hmm. What is a symposium? Symposium comes from the Greek word, which means to drink, to suppose. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a great, uh, it's a great verb, by the way, to use in other ways. Like, what do you, what do you suppose is the meaning of this? <laughs> um, you know, drink, drink your Dionysian potion and let it influence you to the muses of truth. And, uh, <laughs> So basically, it's where you get around to friends and you go around and you hail or whatever sort of, uh, you know, initiatory uh, exclamation you want to use a certain concept, God, idea, person, reality, color, uh, your favorite breed of dog. Um, and you can prepare a meal if you want, uh, but generally you're more as a symposium, someone selecting the music, the wine that's served. Traditionally, it was a very important role in Greece because depending on how much you watered down the wine, determined if it was going to be a philosophical conversation or orgy. So it's not something you want to mess up on. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, fortunately it's much easier to, um, what's the word? Uh, moderate that. Although I will say there was one symposium I had where I left to go use the bathroom and I made the mistake of inviting a nudist there. So when I came back down, everybody was naked. I mean, of course I joined in. I mean, what was I going to do? Be the only, be the only clothed person, but um, nothing came out of that. But, you know, I've, I guess I've gotten halfway to, to, the, to the more traditional Greek varietal. But um, anyway, so you basically just sit around and you talk about ideas and you drink wine or you could drink tea or whatever. It doesn't really have to be alcoholic. Although I do think there's something special about wine and absinthe as far as the uh, philosophical spirits are concerned. Um, and uh, you can talk about art, you can talk about history, just anything of what we would say are the finer things in life. The humanities is, you know, the boring word that academia wants to assign to it, I guess. But uh, I would say the spirities, you know, the things that really make you a spirit rather than just some biological machine that shits and eats. Um, yeah. Sounds very interesting. I like to play uh, lute music in particular. That's my favorite. It's very conversational. Do you play the lute? No, it's lutes are very expensive. Okay. I would like to one day get a lute and also a a harp or a lyre. I'd like to learn those three, but I would like to learn the lute. I just have to make money off Bitcoin or whatever first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is the end of the 50 minute hour. Uh, It was the I think this should, was a good should one. Should we say why we call it the 50-minute hour? Yeah, I was thinking, do you have any closing remarks you can yeah. address that? So in psychoanalysis, we refer to the 15-minute hour as the sort of paradoxical relation that we're seeing a patient uh, for the standard is 50 minutes, um, and time sort of becomes uh, irreferential in, uh, when you're undergoing psychoanalysis, and 50 minutes passes very quickly, or it lasts a really long time, and you're experiencing all these traumas, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's just kind of like an inside joke. Uh, among psychoanalysts, but uh, there's that. I mean, Lacan would see patients for like five minutes. So, you know, there's also the five minute hour, if that's your thing. I mean, at that point to me, it's kind of a fetish, but, you know, let people do what they do. You know, I'm not going to kink shame Lacan. And he had success, you know, so he was doing something right, I guess. (laughs) There you have it. There we have it. That's a good way to end. All right, well, I'll see you all next time.